Well, I'm turning once again back to the scripture we just read a few moments ago, Matthew 12. And I want to draw our attention primarily as we begin um, to verse, uh, verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 12. Uh, Behold, there in verse 10, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will we not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Our subject this morning is a simple title, but a very deep thought. Christ's works of mercy. Christ's works of mercy. On every page of the Scriptures, every page of the Bible, we have something revealed to us. Uh, it is the word, being re- the word revealing to us something about God, specifically either God the Father, of course God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit. But we often see this work or this identity of the person and the work of of Christ. And we see that his work is done by the power of the Spirit. And we understand that this passage before us is revealing. It's revealing in that it not only shows us the identity of Christ, but it also shows us his work. Uh, his works of mercy are indeed glorious works because the works of mercy is what you and I, if we're saved, can claim as that's exactly what it was a work of mercy. Uh, To be saved today is a work of mercy. Uh, There are many, many people in our world today, and sometimes we go blind to this, people who do not have any mercy that they can point to. They can't point to a single work where a person's been merciful to them. They can't point to a single time when they feel as someone demonstrated a real work of mercy to them. And yet the greatest work of mercy that mankind has ever seen is Christ's work, works of mercy. And it lays the foundation or the backdrop for why this accusation by the Pharisees was so wrong on so many levels. Of course, you recall that their their accusation to the Lord the previous last week when we looked at this was because they were uh, plucking corn or picking up the grains along the field on a Sabbath day. The disciples were. The Pharisees had no real concern for truth. They had no real concern for whether or not what was happening Uh, was really right or wrong other than they just wanted to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing on the Sabbath. Had this been any other day but the Sabbath day, the Jews really wouldn't have had anything that they could have accused him of in that sense. But we do know that this identity that we see in Christ, that he deals with the Pharisees and he deals with their attempt to accuse him. So we understand contextually, everything the Pharisees are doing is with an attempt to accuse Not an intent to learn, not an intent to even be converted, not an intent to say, I want to know Jesus. Uh, They, at this point, these Pharisees are completely blinded to the reality of what's even happening, but yet it's all fulfilling Scripture. And I think that's one thing we need to keep in mind. Don't lose sight of the fact that when we see these accounts in Scripture, uh, the the fulfillment of Scripture that must take place, that's going to really set the foundation for next week's message. So from the cornfields, the disciples 
had moved on and Jesus has moved with them. Of course, the conversation we looked at last week, we're not going to review all of that. If you didn't hear that, that is online, you can hear that. But it was a conflict, and it was the first major conflict between the Pharisees and Christ. The violation, so-called, was working on the Sabbath day. And working on the Sabbath day was used as an accusation against the disciples and primarily more against the Lord than it was the disciples. So remember, the question was, why do, you, why do your disciples do this on the Sabbath day? Uh, the accusation was more towards Jesus than it was towards the disciples. But what's interesting is that when we pick up this story, we're often tempted to just assume that these events happened just in a rapid-fire fashion. And that's why it's important to compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, just a, a side note here, you'll notice that the last verse we looked at last week was verse 8, where it says, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day, and when he was departed thence. Uh, Matthew gives the idea that the next events that take place happened immediately. But we do need to look at the book of Luke briefly this morning. Now look at Luke 6, and we're going to see uh, Luke's account of this, and we will understand that this was not on the same Sabbath, and I think you're going to find that this is very important um, because this demonstrates that not only did Jesus approve of the work of the corn that was being uh, plucked, if you will, by the disciples, but another Sabbath comes, <clears throat> and he's going to introduce another uh, principle as to why this is permitted. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, this, in, this is the same account, it's the same event. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. So Luke tells us that what's happening, even in Matthew 12, was not right after Jesus made that declaration. It was another Sabbath. We're not told exactly what Sabbath it is. It might have been next week. It might have been two weeks. But we do know that it was not the same day. You might say, why is that important? I think it, I think it makes all a world of difference why it was another Sabbath. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And Jesus, and he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Notice now Jesus is answering, asking the question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so and his hand was restored whole as the other. Watch the Pharisees' response. Luke describes this a little bit deeper than Matthew. And they were filled with madness. And I don't know if you've ever seen a person who's mad, but this is not just angry madness. This is almost on the level of insanity. I mean, this is insanely angry. They're filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Uh, this is important to understand that Jesus could have certainly uh, could have gone on in Matthew 12 and he could have gone on and performed another healing. He could have performed another thing, but it does tell us that he went to uh, the synagogue on another Sabbath day. Um, it is also said in Mark, and I think this is important. Look at Mark 3. Uh, Mark has an account of this, and every one of the, of the writers um, it doesn't mean that the Bible is contradictory. I hope, I hope you don't buy that lie. It's, it's the perspective that's being written here. 
But Mark 3, verse 1, uh, again, it gives us the kind of the total picture of what happened on this day. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. There's the accusation motivation again. <clears throat> and he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he saith unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. No answer for him. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. So we look at all three of those accounts to kind of get the full story of what's happening here. So we know that this is another Sabbath. Uh, this is another interaction, another conflict between Jesus and the disciples, or the Pharisees rather, uh, regarding what has been taking place. So back in our text, we see that now Jesus has departed and he enters into another synagogue. Um, Jesus at no point was afraid of the conflict with the, with the Pharisees. Uh, at no point in the narrative is Jesus running from the Pharisees because he's fearful. Now I say that because he is going to appear to flee away from them. But understand, Jesus never fled because he was afraid. He never fled because he was afraid that the Pharisees might be able to twist his words and to get something on him. Now remember, everything that Jesus is doing is about the fullness of time, about the proper time for that which he came to do to take place. So if Jesus leaves a scene, if he leaves a place, he's not leaving out of fear, he's leaving because his time has not yet come. And if his time has not yet come, then he is just continuing to carry on the ministry of the work that he is to do. But it also tells us that he's not afraid of the Pharisees, but he also knows he's walking into another conflict. His conflict that he's willing to walk into proves that he is again willing to do good on the Sabbath day because there's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus uses this as another opportunity to be able to demonstrate how it is permissible to do good and to do well on the Sabbath day. So back in our text in Matthew 12, let's break this down into a couple, a few very simple headings. In verses 8 through 10, and this again sets the narrative from where we, where we left off last week, Christ makes a very clear claim of deity. He makes a very clear claim of deity. It begins with verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And when he was departed, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful? Notice they used the word to heal. Okay, now they believed that even healing equated to what's going to be a work on the Sabbath day. Um, the only time that potentially the Pharisees would agree that a work of healing should be done would be if a person's life was at stake. In other words, if this was a life or death situation, a withered hand by every medical uh, opinion would not be a life or death situation. So I don't think it's coincidental that the healing that he does here is by a person that's not life or death. 
However, I do think if Jesus and God had sought, God had sought to do a healing, he could, have, he could have raised a man from the dead on the Sabbath day if that's what he chose to do. But it's another proof against the Pharisees' accusations uh, because they would have, again, treated any healing that was not a life-or-death situation as uh, being impermissible on the Sabbath day. So that first conflict that happened the previous Sabbath or maybe a couple Sabbaths before, he made a clear claim to deity before any of these things take place. He says he is the Son of Man. He says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so uh, they ask him, again, is it lawful? Uh, they're not seeking a correct answer. They are seeking an answer that only would satisfy what they believed it should be. Uh, Jesus customarily went to, this, went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day. This was not something new for him. Uh, it was not like he all of a sudden started going to the synagogues. Uh, this was his custom on the Sabbath. He would go to the synagogues. The Pharisees, no doubt, are still angry about what's happened the previous Sabbath or whenever that was. They're still angry that he did not give in to their restrictions, did not give in to their rules, uh, did not go along with them. But at the same time, he encounters this man. And it's interesting because the narrative in Matthew has a, uh, an interlude, if you will. He has kind of a, 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 another story or an example put in before the healing even takes place. And Jesus gives the illustration here of uh, what they're asking. Uh, the question, again, is not asked out of a desire to really know. Uh, the question is asked out of a desire to accuse. In all three gospel accounts, the purpose of the Pharisees' question was accusation. So we've got to keep in mind that's all they intended to do, was find a reason to accuse him. Now, they already had in their mind's eye, they already had a reason. They had the reason from the other Sabbath when the disciples were plucking the corn. They already had a reason. They're looking for another one. And they're looking for things that they might accuse him. Uh, maybe with that question, is it lawful? Of course, you have to presume that there had to be some malicious intent on their part uh, because the Bible says that they might accuse him. So it's a question being asked um, maybe in this way. One commentator put it this way. Uh, he simply said, uh, he said maybe they were asking, are you really going to do this? Almost in a very prideful way. Would, would you really dare uh, to heal a man who does not have a life or death illness? Would you really do that on the Sabbath day? And I love the fact that Jesus, without any hesitation at all, um, gives an illustration of a, not a, necessarily a life and death situation, but he gives an example of um, of livestock, which is uh, pretty fascinating that he uses that as an example. Uh, they believe that healing a withered hand was not a matter, and that's considered to be unnecessary work. So they considered, if you, if he, if you heal this man, this is unnecessary work, Jesus, and we have another accusation against you. So it's asked with malice. It's asked in an accusatory manner. They're looking for Jesus to say and do something wrong to justify what they want to do. So Christ makes a clear claim of deity before he ever does this. Second heading, verses 11 through 12, Christ clearly declares it is not a sin to heal on the Sabbath day. Christ declares it is not a sin to heal on the Sabbath day. The example he gives, he says unto them after the question, what man shall there be among you? He makes this very personal. Uh, there, were, there would be Pharisees who were also sheep owners. 
Um, he's not asking just a hypothetical question. He's saying, which one of you um, that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Makes it very personal. If, if one of your sheep, one of the part of your, uh, what, what's part of your livelihood, falls into a ditch, and it's the Sabbath day, uh, would you leave that sheep there, or would you lay your hand upon it and lift it up out of the ditch? Now again, that would constitute uh, what we would say, they would say, unnecessary work. But he's driving home a point here. How much then, because he's, he's answering it in a way as if he's affirming their answer before he says it. How much then is a man better than a sheep? And basically he's telling them, I know that this is what you would do. You would lift that sheep out of that ditch. And he says, if you would lift the sheep out of the ditch, how much more value is a man? If you would, quote-unquote, violate the Sabbath according to your man-made restrictions, how much more valuable is a man being lifted out of the spiritual ditch, if you will? And that's uh, really where Jesus is going with this. Even though the Pharisees did not ask a sincere question, Jesus still took the time to teach uh, that the healing on the Sabbath day was permissible. He's again making that same type of argument he made last week when we looked at this. He begins from the lesser and goes to the greater. He uses the less example and goes to the greater example. Jesus often does this as a way of teaching. And he declares clearly, it's not a sin for you two Pharisees to lift out your sheep out of that ditch. He's telling them it's permissible. That does not constitute unnecessary work that is fully within permission to do on the Sabbath day. But he said, if that's acceptable, then it's far more acceptable to heal a man. And I know there are some of our friends in the world today who believe that animals and mankind are on the same level. I will assure you they are not. Mankind and animals are not on the same level. Now, they are not treated the same way. Um, I know we, we, we sometimes think that, uh, but you've got to remember, um, man, is, man is God's crowning creation, not because he's going to be good and perfect, but he is, he's made in the image of God. It's not said about the animals that the animals are made in the image of God. Man was given dominion. Adam was told to name the animals. He was give, given dominion over them. People get, people get lots of things very backwards, but... I'm digressing into something totally different. So he, he says it's man is far more valuable. So the principle is very clearly that Jesus said it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then the narrative returns in verses 13 and 14 back to Christ healing the man with the withered hand. So he asked the question, makes a declaration, it is lawful. And then he said, then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other. Uh, very clearly, this says he, he restored that hand so that it looked just like the other one. It was restored back to its previous condition. Not a partial restoration, not a partial healing, but a complete healing so that it was restored whole like the other. Completely the same. Does Jesus do this behind closed doors? No, he does this in the plain view of the Pharisees. 
He does this so that everybody can see it. Jesus is not doing these healings behind doors and he's not sneaking around right in front of the Pharisees after he gives this example, which is clearly, clearly truth that the Pharisees don't want any part of. He does this healing in the front of those Pharisees and everyone else who's in that synagogue. Now, the question is, did the Pharisees expect Jesus to do this or did they expect him not to do it? I think they fully expected he was going to do this. It's just kind of like the, the old cliche that they were just licking their chops waiting to say, this guy, he's going to do it. I, we know Jesus is going to do this. This wasn't a question of if he's going to do it. It's just a matter of when he's going to do it. There was no part of them that said he's not going to do it. They know what they're dealing with. Now, they know that this Jesus is not going to submit to their authority. And therein lies part of the problem. Jesus is negating the Pharisees' spiritual authority. See, the Pharisees had a great spiritual authority over the people. If you had an issue, often it was a Pharisee you went to speak to, and that Pharisee was to, to know the matters of the law. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he said, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, he understood all of the man-made rules, the regulations that were wrong, and he knew exactly what he was saying. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Which is interesting to me because that also tells me that the Apostle Paul at one time in his life believed what the Pharisees were saying. What a marvelous work of grace that the Apostle Paul, who pens most of the New Testament, the Pharisee of the Pharisee is now the one who stands so strong in his epistles against the very thing in which the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of. Only God can do a work like that. Intellect doesn't do this. This is not man getting smarter. The Pharisees thought they were the smartest people there were and that they didn't know God. They didn't know Christ. But what should the Pharisees have done the moment they saw this healing? They should have fallen on their faces in worship. They should have acknowledged my Messiah, my God. But yet we see that that's not what they do. Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and the other accounts in Luke and Mark were very similar in this, that the Pharisees went out and held a council against him. How they might destroy him. Uh, they are finding any way that they can possibly do to destroy him. Literally, in right in front of their faces, here is God, Christ works of mercy. It also teaches us a lot about that even the works of mercy in the front or the face of an unbelieving heart may not mean anything to them. Unless we are drawn to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit, man will not even recognize Christ's works of mercy. Man will just simply acknowledge it as maybe good luck. They'll simply acknowledge, wow, someone's done good for me. But a blinded soul will refuse and reject Christ's works of mercy. The only reason you and I who are in Christ today sit here today and we are humbled by the works of mercy is because we have, in fact, had our eyes open to the truths of this and the enlightenment of our eyes to see, wait a minute, this Christ, look what he's done for me. 
When we sing hymns like we sang together, again, as I say nearly every week, we sing with knowledge and we sing with understanding. But to people who've never experienced Christ's works of mercy, those are just, that's just another song. This is just another book to them. But to you and I, this is not just another book. And those are not just other songs. I realize they're penned by man. And by the way, our hymn book is not inspired. It's not part of the canon. And if we get really, really technical, I'm sure if we go through all those hymns, we're going we're to find something that doesn't sound quite right, doesn't sing quite right, and we're going to say, see, see, we're not treating the hymn book as if it's infallible. But the Bible is. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired. It's without error. It's without contradiction. No matter what the, the biblical critical individual says today, that the Bible's filled with contradictions. If you think the Bible's filled with contradictions, it's because you don't understand the Scripture. It's not contradictory. Now, when you become a full Bible expert and then you still find contradictions, come and see me. But you will not find contradictions in Scripture. God has not given us a contradictory book because if He did, that at some point God would be a liar. And He's never lied. Yet we have people today who claim to be believers who doubt portions of Scripture. They say, I don't really think that happened. I don't think that's true. Listen, this healing took place. And Jesus, these works of mercy, uh, this was an actual healing that took place. He healed the man with the withered hand. The Pharisees did not respond in repentance. They did not respond in worship. They held a council instead how they might destroy this also does show us how that the Pharisees were enslaved to their rules and their traditions. Um, it is possible in our day and age to be enslaved to your tradition. It's possible for you to be enslaved to your rules and your restrictions. And we all, in some sense, have created in our minds over our years of experience something that we say, this is what the Bible says. No, it's your tradition. It's your rule. It's your restriction. It's what you say is right. But the problem is you can't back it up with Scripture. You say this is what the Bible says, and you say, well, show me chapter and verse, and you can't find it. It's a man-made tradition. That's what the Pharisees had. They had a lot of rules. They added more rules than what the Bible actually said about the Sabbath itself. If you were to look at the God's quote-unquote rule book, of restrictions on the Sabbath day, study the whole Old Testament, you would find very few in comparison to what their rule book said. It's kind of like the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church itself has more rules than the Bible actually has. They have volumes of books about what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to be and this and that, and yet none of it's in the Scripture. The Catholic books take the preeminent place over the Scripture. That's what the Pharisees do. Their books, their traditions, their man-made traditions were what guided them. Jesus did something that nobody would dare do, especially in that day, would be to negate the authority that the Pharisee had over spiritual matters. Jesus said, your authority is of nothing. I have a claim to deity because I am God. So man responds how every man responds unless his eyes are open to the truth by God he seeks a way to destroy that which he hates. Christ clearly shows that his works of mercy were lawful and proper to be done on the Sabbath day. 
Now, this doesn't mean that these are the only things that are, quote-unquote, permissible or doing well. Of course, the Bible shows us that Jesus, throughout time, he attends to the sick. There's a relief of the poor. There's helping those who are in need. Uh, It's even teaching the young how to care for themselves and for others. There are things that are doing good, works of necessity, works of mercy, and even works of devotion. This idea that we've created in our mind of all this list of restrictions of what thou can't not do on a certain day. Even Paul in Colossians makes mention of uh, making more about the holy days and making them more than what they were intended to be. You know, I've often, I've often heard this said that uh, people say, well, I am, a, I am a complete observer of the Sabbath. And yet, if you were truly in a full observer of it, how does that show forth in your life? Um, is that only guided by what would be considered, quote unquote, permissible? And yet that's for another day. But in verse 15, it says about this fourth heading that Christ voluntarily withdraws himself from the crowds. When Jesus knew it, knew of what? He knew of the counsel against him. He knew of the plot. But as I mentioned at the introduction, he knew his time had not yet come. He's not fleeing out of fear. He's fleeing out of obedience to the Father, which his time has not yet come. There's a big difference in fleeing a scene in fear or because he might get debated out of the synagogue. Jesus was not afraid of debate in the synagogue. One other time he walks into the synagogue, he reaches up to speak, and the, the scroll is open to Isaiah. So open to the spirit of liberty. He's right there and he's reading it. And he's reading about himself in the synagogue. He's not leaving because he's afraid. His time had not yet come. He doesn't flee as an unbrave soul. He knows he's going to the cross. That's why he came. He came to die. But he also knew there was a specific timetable for his work. Christ's work on the cross was not a matter of man's timing. We've said this enough here. It was not according to the Roman authorities' calendar, and it was not according to the Jewish calendar. They had nothing to do with it. Uh, Even down to the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus, don't fool yourself into thinking that somehow mankind uh, stuck to the back door and got in. No, that's all part of the timing. Don't think that Judas Iscariot was not the one that was ordained before the foundation of the world, that he would be the betrayer. It's this idea that says, well, someone else other than Judas could have ended up being the betrayer. The Bible says Judas was the one from the very beginning. The scripture says that Christ must suffer and die. Christ had to go to the cross. Jesus isn't fleeing because he's afraid of anything. Uh, Later on in Matthew, the 26th chapter, in verse 18, uh, Jesus makes mention of this and says, And he said, go into the city. This is where he's preparing for the final Passover he'll have with his disciples. He says, go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. The Lamb of God knows that his death, his, his burial, his resurrection is all coming. And he tells them, my time is at hand. At that moment, Jesus was not going to flee. You know, just like the 
I don't think it's a great song, but you know, talking about Jesus could have changed his mind at the last minute. And yes, there's there's thousands of angels at his disposal, but he wasn't thinking on the cross. I think I want to change my mind. It, it is the will of the Father that he goes, and that's the very promise you and I have that, that he accomplished our salvation there. But Jesus would use this. He would speak about time. He would speak about my, his time was coming. Uh, one more passage just to give us a reference of how Jesus spoke about this. John 7, verse 6, he says, Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come but your time is always ready. Uh, Jesus is giving a prophecy there, not only about the plan for his life, but also the plan for his disciples' life. The time had been set. The decrees, the providence of God, it's not going to be altered by man. Uh, man's, man can never hinder the providential hand of God or his decrees. We give man way too much credit. Man only acts according to what God has ordained would be the case. We say man is going to hinder God's work in this place. Well, let me tell you something. There's absolutely nothing that will hinder God saving your soul today if that is his will for your soul to be saved this morning. There's no hindrance that mankind is going to do. I've heard it said hundreds of times. You know, the reason we turn our cell phones off when we come into church is because we don't want a distraction. Listen, the salvation of a soul is not going to be dependent upon a cell phone ringing. You understand that we didn't come here today just for that. We came to worship the true God and to worship in spirit and in truth. We act as if God's plan is being hindered. Or we look at the events on the television, on the computer, and we say, I, I don't know, how, how can all these events be happening? God must have fallen asleep. No, they're all part of the plan, even though you and I don't understand it. And the time that Jesus returns, it's also on a timetable. It's also coming. The hour is coming when Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth again. He's coming to take his bride. And every eye is going to see it. And they're going to know this is the Messiah. This is the Savior who went to the cross, who died, who was buried, who rose again on the third day, was seen by many witnesses, and ascended up to heaven where He is seated at the right hand of the Father even at this very hour. Christ withdraws Himself from that crowd. And Christ, we know now, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, Matthew gives us the account that the next event that happens is that the Bible says when Jesus knew it in verse 14 or 15, rather, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all and charged them that they should not make him known. This is always an interesting thing when we see it because Christ withdraws himself from the crowd. But then our next heading, he gives a interesting charge or a command. Christ charges the multitudes to not make him known. It's always fascinating to me that when you see a miracle of Christ's work of mercy, that his immediate command to them is, is not go and tell everybody you know. 
Go and tell everybody about this work that you just saw. You would think that if a person had just performed a miracle of a withered hand that was nearly was unrecognizable and restored unto whole, you would think that the first thing he would say, now go out and tell everybody what you just saw. But after most of Jesus' miracles, that's not what he says. He always seems to give more credence to this. Don't go out and make me known. It's kind of contrary to what we do. We see a great work of God or we sense a great work of God and the first thing is we go and we publish it and we blaze it all over to say, you got to see this. But that's not what he says. He tells the multitudes, do not make me known. And yet, he's going to give us a little bit of insight in just a moment as to why he's doing that. In Luke and in Mark, various events take place. I think it's in Mark, it actually says he goes to pray. Uh, Luke says he goes about the preaching and healing ministry. Again, continues to draw these great crowds. But again, he warns them to not make him known. And again, this cure, remember, this spiritual, this cure of the man with the withered hand is more about a spiritual healing than it is a physical healing. And this is where the charismatics get this all messed up. They are focused on healing the physical ailment of the body now. You realize why we have physical ailments as a result of sin. You realize why things happen and why our bodies are falling apart, why we die, is because of sin. The charismatic wants to deal with the physical health. Now, we know that they're, they're phony. Staging. Or they'll tell you something like this. If you can't be healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. There's only one theological word for it, that's baloney. That has nothing to do with that. They are not given the ability. Now, can God heal? Absolutely He can. I've seen it. I've witnessed people who've gone to doctors and they've said, you have got a terminal disease, and to go back later and to say, we don't know what happened to it, but that disease is gone. I believe God can heal. But this idea that says man can just pull this on himself. Now, this is Jesus doing this work. The intent of this is not so that you can find your gift to heal. This is to show the works of mercy in the spiritual realm, most importantly. This man, just like many other cures which Christ did upon people, the deep spiritual meaning here, we are unable of ourselves to do anything that is good. We need to keep this in mind. It is Christ alone and by the power of His grace that cures us. He healed that withered man's hand. And He healed it by His restoration. How are we redeemed? How are we converted? How are we brought into everlasting life? Because life is put into us. Dead men do not raise themselves. It has never happened. There has never been a single event of a person in a graveyard who raised themselves from the dead. Yet we're willing to say a man or a woman who's dead spiritually can lift themselves up from that dead spiritual condition. They cannot do that. And yet Jesus shows us that it is only He who can instill life into that which is dead. Matthew does give us a perspective, and we'll kind of bring this to a conclusion this morning. He offers us a perspective as to why Jesus gave this command. Look what He says in verse 17 that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by 
Isaiah the prophet saying. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. The reason that he did this is for a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It is this prophecy that he mentions next that primarily comes from the book of Isaiah that describes exactly what's happening here. That's the perspective. That he's doing this to fulfill biblical prophecy. There is nothing random about Christ's works of mercy. It's not just somebody just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Christ's works are not random. They are determined. They are complete fulfillments of Scripture. Now we saw here this morning that in verses 6 and 8, Christ declares Himself the Savior. He declares Himself the Son of Man. He claims divinity. He claims supremacy. He claims that He is sovereign. He's showing yet again, as he did in verse 8, that he is greater than the temple and he's the Lord even of the Sabbath. Christ is Lord of all. He's fulfilled the law. He didn't do away, but he fulfilled it perfectly. Everything that concerns God and man, Christ is the Lord of all. He arranges, he disposes of the Sabbath days as He pleases, but He does not violate the law when He does that. He demonstrated His works of mercy on the Sabbath day. That's very important in this case. And not one of these events, not one of these events did He profane or violate the Sabbath law. Works of necessity, works of devotion, works of mercy, all of those were within Christ's rights. And of course, they were according to what the law demanded. Now folks, we've got to be very, very careful. And again, I'm not going to say much on this today, but you've got to be very, very careful to paying too much attention to those who make it more than it is. Now, I'm not going to say much about that this morning, but you've got to be careful that you understand what does the Bible actually say about this and what are these people telling me about this? If you cannot back up that belief through Scripture... You cannot definitively say this is what the Bible says. It's got to have scriptural basis to be able to say this is the case. We do know that today, even in our society, and again, no specifics this morning per se, but we do need to understand that there are those who even make the Sabbath today a yoke of bondage, who by their own restrictions, by their own man-made rules and laws, are pointing our eyes away from the rest that is found in Christ and turning it to something that is a man-made restriction. So be careful about where your convictions come from, why you believe what you believe. Make sure it's what the Bible actually says, not a pastor somewhere along the line that told you this is what you must believe or this is what you should believe. As I tell you, every time we break and we leave, You need to study this to show yourself approved. Study and make sure what you're hearing is biblical. Make sure what you're hearing is from the Word of God. Any man who stands up and preaches the Word is not afraid to tell you to do that. Doesn't mean he's not going to misspeak. It doesn't mean he's going to be perfect in his delivery because he can't be. But study it to show yourself approved. Christ's works of mercy are certainly something to be glory to glory in, but we don't glory in our works, but we glory in the works that He has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness, and we do thank You for Christ's works of mercy 
especially with regard to our salvation. Father, we know that we are filthy. We are depraved. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. But we know that through the power and the drawing of God, that even the sinner, the chief of sinners, as the Apostle Paul declared himself to be, when the Spirit of God came upon him, he was saved, he was converted. The chief Pharisee, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, was arrested and apprehended by the glory of God and went on to proclaim with an experiential knowledge of Christ's work of mercy in his own life. Lord, for those of us that are here today who know what it is to be saved and know what it is to be converted, may it bring us to praise and thanksgiving and worship that Christ in His mercy has saved us. And may we never take credit for any part of our salvation, but give all the glory and praise and honor to Christ alone. Father, we thank You for this time. For it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.